Welcome to the Dare to Move podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Wood, and this is a high energy show. This season, season three, we're talking all things team, collaboration, and how to take aligned action after the stillness work. Tune in for passionate conversations from trailblazers and innovators, my own personal coaching insights, and honestly, who knows? Because this show is where anything goes. It's unscripted and all for you. You guys, it is April. How the heck is it already April? Um, I am recording this before my due date, which is slash was March 28th. So there is a very good chance that as this lands in your ears, I am holding a newborn, which is super exciting. And so I just want to take a second before we get into this episode to reflect on some of the guests that you have heard from because they've all been so unique and so different and also so powerful. Um, But there have been some themes, so I'm hoping that um, I can pull those out for you because they're going to carry through today too. Um, One thing always leads to the other, and I'm just really enjoying flowing through this season. So last week, you guys heard from Nurture by Naps, which was uh, scheduled right around my due date, which is beautiful because they helped me really prepare. Um, they really educated me for, um, my, my birth and, and what to expect. I mean, it's crazy that my aunt WA says babies don't come with instructions. And I laugh because they really don't, but nurture by naps (laughs) gave me those instructions. Thank goodness. And so the theme I wanted to pull out about that is a couple things. Um, one empowerment, and two, that there's every experience is valid. Everything that happens with your your unique baby or your unique birth is valid. So empowerment in our own uniqueness and really owning that versus um, being embarrassed or shameful of that really plays into today, truly. And and it'll make more sense why uh, in in a moment. So we have empowerment and owning our uniqueness. So prior to our lovely Emily, the nurse practitioners who came on, uh, Emily and Jamie, who even if you're not pregnant, go listen to that. It will blow your mind because there's just so much info that we just don't know unless, you know, we're in it. (laughs) Um, But uh, prior to that, I'm going to just kind of jump around. I'm not going to go like in order, but we had um, another just while we're on the vein of... um, pregnancy, birth, all of those things that are empowering. We also had a, a very fierce co-founder on the podcast named Stephanie Rampolo, who was on to talk about the fourth trimester and how she's empowering women to um, get coverage for the care they need in that fourth trimester. So lactation consultant can be covered by insurance. So if there's just a chance that you're a new listener and you're pregnant and you're like, wait, lactation support can and should be covered by my insurance please reach out because that a hundred percent, that episode dropped on February 28th. And, um, we got a lot of great feedback on that because it's just something you don't know. And they take care of dealing with the insurance company for you, which is also just so empowering. And because we don't know what our unique experience is going to be like sometimes, which hint slash spoiler alert, we do talk about preventing trauma today on this episode you're about to hear. Um, But I just wanted to highlight that for you. And then we also talked about 
radical responsibility on the episode that dropped March 7th with Erin McMorrow because Erin is an author who wrote the book Grounded, A Fierce Feminine Guide to the Soil and um, I think Healing from the Ground Up. I think that's the title. Um, (laughs) I just don't have it in front of me, but I know that it's basically, I just call it Grounded. And today we talk about grounding as a form of getting back in our bodies from a traumatic experience. So today we're going to kind of continue on the thread that Aaron brought up with embodiment and grounding. So I just, again, I, I'm going to talk all about Ashley Sonson, who's so amazing, our guest today, but it's not lost on me that these women, we have an author from Topanga, California, Aaron McMorrow, who I just mentioned, a Boston entrepreneur, nurse practitioners, and today we're, we're going to hear from a trauma specialist. They're all kind of saying these similar messages. So the other two I just want to highlight because they also deal with our own authenticity or our own uniqueness and empowerment was Christina Glickman uh, from March 14th, who is awesome. And she talked all about being authentically you and how to really start becoming more of who you really are versus who you think you should be. And she really dives into the mental and emotional facets that can preoccupy us sometimes before we actually just let ourselves be who we really are, which is I found that episode and that discussion incredibly empowering. And then finally, we went down a a little bit of a rabbit hole with Abby Huber, the functional dietitian, also out of Boston, who talked to us about mold and really some complex things about mold and her journey that happened kind of recently where she realized she had mold in her apartment and the impacts it had on her body. And um, we got into a lot of interesting discussion on moldy foods, um, the lymphatic system, and ways that you can take charge of that. So we've had everything from spiritual to scientific to mental and emotional support on ways to be more empowered. And today, I'm here to share a beautiful, really incredibly educational episode from a woman named Ashley Sonson, who is out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is cool because I don't think I've had anyone from Philly on the podcast. Uh, So what's interesting about Ashley Ashley is a licensed clinical social worker. She's certified as a trauma center, trauma-sensitive yoga facilitator through the Center for Trauma and Embodiment at the Justice Resource Institute. Uh, And the trauma center, trauma-sensitive yoga, focuses on feeling and sensing into the body to inform and empower our choices. So if you are a loyal listener and you were around in 2020 when we talked all about stillness and embodiment and getting out of our minds and into our bodies, this is going to just continue to educate you on all of that. It takes it all a step further. Um, So the trauma center, uh, trauma sensitive yoga seeks to support those with experiences of complex relational trauma to reconnect with themselves and recultivate a sense of agency that's been compromised by a traumatic experience. So Ashley provides this trauma sensitive counseling and coaching. She also is an educator, a consultant, and does program leadership and development in various community organizations and nonprofits throughout the Philly region. Uh, Much of her professional experience involves working with survivors of trauma, and interpersonal violence, which we're going to talk about that today and what what's different between that and other types of trauma um, and supporting organizations working to create more trauma-informed and responsive systems, which I love because it's being very proactive. And to be honest, you guys, I 
asked a question at the end of this episode about, is there anything we can do to prevent trauma? But I almost stopped myself from asking because I was like, that not that how anxiety starts, right? Worrying about the future. Aren't we supposed to just be present in the moment? And I was like, no, I don't think that's a, I don't think that that is a bad question because if we think of trauma being something we want to, like we try to avoid accidents all the time, right? We wear seatbelts in the car and we wear helmets when we ride our bikes. So I ended up asking the question, I think you'll really like her answer. It is towards the end of the episode. So a little bit more on Ashley, just so you guys know, she's so soft-spoken and so sweet and so just heart-centered, which I adore, that I just want to continue to like kind of share how incredibly brilliant she is because she uh, she's fierce. <laughs> um, she's currently a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice, where she also received her graduate degree. And she also maintains an independent practice in Philly. And um, she does work as a yoga practitioner for the uh, trauma-sensitive yoga. If you guys are interested, you can find her on the traumasensitiveyoga.com website and uh, work with her. Um, her revision includes integrating her knowledge and skills in trauma-informed and responsive care, movement practice, and clinical social work to create communities that promote safety, growth, and healing. So she is just a wealth of knowledge. And we were connected through Fran Gallagher, who you guys heard from. Uh, in January. Spoiler alert, I'll always remember that episode because she was telling me this story about how she used to work as an intuitive. They didn't like to use the word psychic at this institute she worked for, working with really important, crazy, awesome, uh, prestigious CEOs. And um, she started tuning in to this guy and she kept getting this overwhelming sense of bubblegum. And she asked the guy, she said, why am I sensing bubblegum with you? Like, and it's bazooka, specifically bazooka bubblegum. Why? And you'll have to tune in to find out why. But she basically cracked an entirely, uh, a very big issue in his company based on sensing that, uh, which is so crazy. But you'll have to go listen to that episode. We'll throw it in the show notes so that you can Go find it. Um, today, my hope is that you guys take something away on somatic healing, on understanding your shame, on what is post-traumatic stress disorder versus just general trauma. What is trauma? I asked the question, guys, because I have had experiences in my life that I, I, I look back, I'm like, oh, that was such a traumatic time for me, but I'm being dramatic. And I, or I, I felt like I was being dramatic because it wasn't an incident that was actually uh, capital T trauma in my book, but I, I realized while we're in real time recording that it still was traumatic based on her definition of trauma. So I think you'll really enjoy that. Um, we talk about psychological safety. We talk about having safety plans, emotional capacity, uh, the trauma sensitive yoga or, um, yeah, trauma sensitive yoga, um, and timelines. How long does it take to heal? Right. It is just, so interesting um, to me, all of this. And so one of the things that Ashley asked me to say before we get started is just to disclaim for you guys that trauma is a very sensitive topic and it is completely normal to have a response to any of the things that we are going to talk about today. Um, 
I very much will say many times during this episode, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just asking from my own experience. Um, my goal is not to trigger anybody, but if you feel that, she said, just feel, you know, give yourself permission to pause this episode if you need to, uh, and take a break, come back to it later, or don't come back to it at all. But, um, she's very soft-spoken. She's very, uh, sensitive, very open-hearted. And I just know that you guys are gonna, love this episode. So thank you so much to Ashley for coming on, sharing her wisdom. And I hope that you guys leave this episode feeling empowered and um, courageous and, and willing and supported in embracing your own uniqueness. So without further ado, I introduce Ashley Sonson. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Garrett. It's so, so nice to be here with you. Yes, we got connected through Fran Gallagher, the intuitive who was on the show uh, first interview, I think, of of this year, which is so neat. Yes, thank you, Fran. Thanks for the connection. (laughs) Yes, we have to give her a little bit of gratitude. And uh, similar to how her episode was super deep and, you know, straight into the heart of things, you shared a really powerful poem that, uh, to be honest, when I read it, I was like, I don't know where this is going to go because it could mean so many different things. So the poem is called Wild Geese by Mary Oliver, and I'm going to read it. um, And then I would love just to hear kind of why you chose it and what it means to you. Um, The poem is... You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to <laughs> to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Mm, yes. Thank you. Yeah. I, so I, part of um, my life actually before I became a clinical social worker and I'm doing the work that I'm doing in with yoga um, was an English major. So I'm really connected. Poetry and uh, literature is something that really grounds me in my work. And so for me, this there, there's my connection to that, but then there's also the connection of, um, you know, I've worked with so many people with really adverse experiences in life and a lot of really uh, difficult traumas. And something that I've, a theme that I've seen in my work is people thinking that that there's something wrong with them. There's something broken or contaminated about them after an experience that they've gone through. And uh, there's something about this poem, I think that it's an important message of you don't, you don't have to, um, I guess, beat yourself up or be part of, of that internalized message that you may have received as a result of whatever you experienced in life, what happened to you. Um, and it connects a lot to the, the work that I do in terms of movement and being embodied in your experience. That's something that's really hard for people after they've gone through the experiences in life that they may have gone through. Um, and so being able to reconnect in that way to what you love can be really difficult, but also really essential in, in terms of uh, being able to find your way back to yourself in, in many ways. And I, I find that in the healing and recovery process for trauma, a lot of people um, are, are trying to find a way back to that embodying experience, whether that's just feeling, being able to feel uh, their arm sometimes, or being able to, to know what's going on internally to help them make decisions in their life to reach the goals that they want to reach. Um, so that's that's a piece of, of why I chose it. I, another, another thing I actually just uh, found out before coming on, you know, Mary Oliver is a uh, she's pretty well-known poet. She's, she won a Pulitzer prize 
And her, this is probably one of her more well-known poems. So if, if people have heard of her, they've probably heard this poem or this is a, a snippet of the, big, the beginning of the poem. Um, but I, I was thinking of her in sending this to you and I, I um, was thinking of this and sending this to you. And when I looked her up just to see, to kind of find some more information about her, I realized um, she was actually in a, a survivor of sexual abuse. Mm. And that's something I hadn't known about her. She was really quite a private person. She didn't do a lot of interviews. Um, unfortunately, she's, she's passed on from us at this point, but she, in her later, I guess one of her later interviews uh, revealed that she had been um, a survivor. And so I think there's something really hopeful also about this quote now, it, it, certainly for me and in, in hearing that information, hopeful in that she seemed to find a way through her art and her craft to feel present in mm. her body and her experience and to find some, some healing in that, which is really uh, encouraging. Wow. That makes so much sense to me now. And, and so many things are landing and some of them we'll get to now. Some of them will We'll go to, to later. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about on this show is grounding. We've, we've talked to um, literally an author who wrote a book called Grounding. So that's going to stand out to people as well as the word embodiment and being in your body. The interesting thing that the interesting angle you're coming in from today is that a lot of times I talk about how anxiety and worry and living from our mind and not in our body, the problems that that can cause for us as humans in general, and where you're coming from is saying like, there are, it's sort of like the chicken or the egg. Like it's hard to get in your body. If you're just natural tendencies to be in your mind and where you're coming from is it's hard to get in your body. If something pretty traumatic happened to your body. And that makes a lot of sense. And um, it could suck the life out of you. If something traumatic happened at the gym, you may not want to physically go there. Or if something happened to your leg, you may not want to exercise your legs. Um, I'm just giving really surface level examples. But um, I am excited that you've brought up this um, notion of embodiment already, because um, I personally had a very hard time uh, being in my body as a, as a human. And I can track my addiction to exercise and make sense of it. I mean, there were many layers to it, but one of the layers is like, it, it gets you in your body. So, um, I'm curious as to, um, and actually I want to save this other question for later, but really quickly, um, how do you feel like you get, what is your, um, most common embodiment practice for yourself? Mm, great question. And, and thank you for, thank you for sharing that too. And as an example, I think, um, that was, that's a really helpful example for people to hear for me. Uh, how do I get in my body? I, I think it differs depending on my mood and the context of what I'm doing. So some days, all I really need is to, to take a pause and take a deep breath, um, and just do nothing for about 30 seconds. And then other times I, I go, I use a lot of movement and yoga, um, has been really important for me in my background throughout my kind of life journey. And it, the kind of yoga I do now looks a little different from the kind of yoga I did maybe five or 10 years ago, but um, it, it's still something about just moving, whether that's yoga. I also hike, uh, you know, and I'm really connected to nature that, that helps me to feel connected to myself um, in a more grounded kind of present way. Mm. So those, those are all things that I draw on or that I go to when 
I start to feel overwhelmed. Like when my internal capacity starts to feel overwhelmed or my social supports aren't quite mm-hmm. there, like that's what I, I turn to. Mm. And one of the things that you had um, mentioned that I read to the listeners in the intro about what you do with your work around embodiment and, and healing is um, you said the words feeling and sensing into the body to inform our choices. And I just, I'm really curious because it makes sense to me, right? We get a gut feeling about something or we uh, get uh, butterflies or raw sensation somewhere in our body that's telling us and informing us. So I, that part landed but I thought that since we just mentioned that we met through Fran and that you've done some work with her and, and she's, you know, the, the queen of, of your intuition, is there a difference for you between how do we know the difference between like feeling in and sensing into our bodies for information versus our intuition? Or do you see them as the same thing? I see them as really connected, you know, and, and you could take that feeling and sensing into your body. I mean that in its most literal way, almost like you were saying, feeling butterflies or maybe feeling like a hunger pain, like, Oh, that tells me I might need to eat. Right. And so because we might feel like our stomach growl, that's giving us information about a need that we might have or an action that we can take. Okay. I'm hungry. So, all right, let me go get something to eat in as a really simple example, but I think it's important to note that when people have experienced um, traumatic things in life or really adverse circumstance, it could be really hard to feel that or to be aware of that because the body, um, our bodies have just some really stunning adaptations to help us survive in the world Mm. so that if we feel a threat in life, um, it, it goes and, you know, there's part of our brain that gets alerted and that locks us into this response to help us survive, but that, that knocks things offline, right? Like they're in that moment, we're focused on surviving. And so we may not be putting words or language to what we're experiencing in that moment, right? If there's a threat that pops up mm. um, or if we feel helpless in a situation, which are features of trauma um, is when, you know, we feel helpless in a situation. So, um, so, because of, uh, you know, those moments in life, they're really stunning adaptations, they help people survive. But then it's not it's not kind of like a flip, a switch can flip after that. Mm. And then suddenly you can go back to feeling in the way that you did, especially if experiences you had were persistent through life. Um, persistent stress you're experiencing ongoing. Wow. And so it can be really hard for people who ex- have experiences like this to even uh, feel that that stomach growl or feel those butterflies, like you said. And so some of some of um, feeling and sensing is just practicing, like like working a muscle, right? Of trying to um, find a way back to being able to access those feelings. Mm. So sometimes that can be really difficult. And in in terms of what you're saying about intuition, I I think it is really connected. So if it's if it's hard on that physical level. It's also hard to know what we want to do or what we want in life. Um, it can be really hard without the access to those sensations in our body to help guide us to the things uh, that we actually want and need. Mm, that's it's so complicated and uh, I should say complex. Obviously, yes, yeah. figure <laughs> figure outable because there are people like you that can 
can guide people. But one of the um, images that came up for me and, you know, I love this quote. I knew we were going to spend a lot of time here. And before we get to who you are, I just, I want to spend more time here because um, a lot's coming through, but one of the women who's been on this podcast, um, she's an author and really uh, a spiritual teacher. She talks about how when an animal's being chased in the wild, um, maybe by a tiger or something, uh, that they pretty much go numb. And that's why once they reach safety, they kind of like shake their bodies to shake out the, 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 or, or to maybe make their body come back online. And it's such an interesting adaptation. Um, and so I wanted to see one, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And two, when you were just describing, you know, work, trying to tune back into your body and getting back in touch and, and how hard it can be. Um, I thought of, you know, psychological safety and, uh, to connect these kind of two questions I'm asking, I guess the better reframe is when we look at that example of how the animal can just shake its body and get that out, uh, why do, what extra layer maybe do humans need to be able to release some of that somatically? That's a great question. And I, I'm glad you brought up that example because we just like, you know, other creatures, we also have that, that physiological response to a threat. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, sometimes we don't have that shake off moment. And that's where, that's where the impact of trauma, I think is strongly felt. It's almost like that gets frozen in our bodies, that there was no opportunity for release in mm. our, our physical body in the moment for whatever threat or whatever um, stressful experience that a person went through. And so that's part of why, um, you know, in my work, I found I'm, I really connect with trying to find opportunities or offer opportunities for people to find embodied ways to reconnect with themselves, because I think that's, that's the first step um, mm -hmm. for a lot of people is being able to, to reconnect so that maybe you could talk about and process what happened at some point. So, and that, that could take, a, you know, it could take a while to do that. It, it's really unique to the individual and their circumstances. Um, and I, I think there are different avenues to do that, certainly. Um, and, and yoga or movement, or um, like you mentioned, exercise, these, there are different ways and paths to, to recover mm -hmm. and to access that moment of being able to release or to reconnect in a way that, that does release some of the, um, the terror or the, the loss or whatever emotions, the rage, there, there are many things that can be kind of held in our physical body that, through what we experienced. Mm. And I, I'm excited to talk more about that weight in a little bit. Um, cause it's, it can be heavy and, um, exhausting to carry stuff that's really doesn't need to be carried anymore. And I have yeah. some personal stories, but, um, before we do that, um, I would love for you to just answer the, the question I ask all my guests of who are you, you know, who are you before your titles, before your job? Um, yeah, as just as your being. That's a great question. And, and that's one I'm, I'm smiling a little bit to myself because I think that's one that I'm, that I'll be figuring out for the rest of my life, right? It, mm -hmm. That's life's journey is it teaches you so many things about yourself as you go. Um, but I, I think, you know, before the work that I do, um, the, the word that pops into my mind is explorer. I, I definitely am an explorer at heart. And, and I don't just mean, you know, I love to travel. I love, 
I love to be um, learn always learning and growing and and taking in different perspectives, whether that whether I am traveling or whether I'm talking to somebody who uh, you know I've known for years. Uh, there's just something about uh, being able to to hear other people's stories or um, to be in a in a place that is unfamiliar that helps me reflect on the human experience and who I am. And so I, I think even in this work that I am doing, you know, I even before the work, um, I think that kind of impulse in me led me to this work, mm -hmm. to exploring um, our bodies and to exploring the impact that has on our emotional and psychological health and on our relationships and on our communities. So mm -hmm. it's, it's I, I think that impulse of who I am, part of who I am, it plays very much into uh, it's a bridge into what I'm doing now for sure. Beautiful. And did you always want to focus on trauma or did you start somewhere else and then kind of hone in on trauma? No, you know, I, um, I, I guess I, the thing that led me, the beginning that led me to this work, I, you know, I graduated from, um, an undergraduate program in college and did a, a volunteer program where I was working with youth who, were at risk for homelessness, who had run away from homes um, that were not conducive to them, where they'd been harmed. And that's really where I, I started to understand or begin to understand the impact of uh, trauma and stress, even though I didn't, ha I didn't have that language for it at the time, but uh, I began to see it play out, you know, in, in their interactions or, you know, in, the difficulty in reaching the goals that they wanted to in life, you know, in conflict they were having with each other. And, and that, you know, it was a very long kind of process of them teaching me and, and, and understanding that it's really, um, it's not about what's wrong with a person. I have a colleague who has this, who, uh, his name is Joe Fotorero. He'll say, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you or what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, he, that's a really, um, he framed that real in a really lovely way, like succinct way, but that's what I was learning at the time was that, mm. it, you know, that whatever a person was showing me was, was they were trying to show me their story and their behavior. Mm. Um, and it really wasn't, it wasn't about posturing that it was something wrong with them. It was, it was something that had happened to them. They have a, had a story that needed to be expressed that they may not have had the words for because of what happened to them. Oh, wow. And I think for the listeners, it would be a good time to uh, learn how you describe trauma. Um, and uh, I've used the phrase capital T trauma, lowercase t trauma. I, they may have heard that on other um, podcasts, but I'd love to know if you use those contexts um, yourself as well. That's a, yeah, that's a, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I think they're, um, there are a lot of definitions of trauma about there. The, w the way I understand it, I mean, um, it's an experience that it has an impact on people physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. It can change and ripple down through all aspects of a person's being. It's typically an experience where someone has um, experienced powerlessness or helplessness in the face of a threat. And that could be a threat of injury or a threat um, of death, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, it can be, um, it can involve relational betrayal um, and can be persistent and chronic. And, and so 
I think it's easy to get involved in looking objectively at the story or like what the specific situation and saying, well, that sounds like a trauma, like a big trauma or a little trauma. But that always feels a little bit like a trap to me because really the thing that um, tells me that someone's been traumatized is their, their body's reaction, their mind's reaction situations where your internal capacity, so my ability to cope and manage emotions or to deal with the loss of what happened, that that gets overwhelmed, that I my resources have, have been overwhelmed in that capacity and I can't cope with whatever situation I experience. Mm. And then also your, your other, your external support. So uh, the people in your life, family, community, um, how they've responded, are they, you know, do you have supports? Can you find connection? in whatever experience you've had. Um, if those capacities are also overwhelmed and you and a person doesn't have access to those um, or, or to resources, uh, even basic level of resources to be able to, to do this kind of reflection and introspection, which in itself is a privilege in a lot of ways, um, that to me um, is an experience of trauma. Gotcha. So in, in the way that I think some people who haven't looked at trauma, don't uh, tune into conversations about healing trauma, anything like that. I think, you know, and maybe even myself 10 years ago would be like, oh, a traumatic incident. There was an incident that happened at a certain time. It was traumatic because it was, you know, had an awful ending or a bad injury or something like that. So you're like, okay, that was a traumatic incident um, or maybe emotionally traumatic for somebody to experience death. And it's, again, it's this isolated incident and then the, you know, we, we just look at the incident, but what you're describing is like, it could be for a period of time. And that's sort of what, what happened for me in my life is the further away I got from this sort of move to Boston that I did, um, gosh, over seven years ago now, I used to joke, um, oh, that was such a traumatic time for me because I didn't want to move. I felt really isolated and all alone. I felt like I had no support. I felt like I was going against my will. I was emotionally overwhelmed. I was therefore over-exercising, disordered eating, all these things. And yet that was a period of time. And um, at the time when I said, oh, that was a traumatic time in my life, let's say I said that in 2018. Um, I didn't mean it like a, a really sh striking incident. However, my one of my teachers always says words are the gateway to the brain and i would choose to use those words so how do you talk to people that may have had incidences uh or periods of time like myself where it was a uh, several months of going through this sort of uh under resourced whether that's emotionally or all the ways you describe not having the power not feeling autonomous not feeling sovereign how do you talk them through that yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I conceptualize um, that as a, a complex form of trauma. Any, okay. any experience that involves perhaps relational betrayal or kind of persistent conditions of stress that are ongoing, whether that's abuse, it could be abuse, uh, physical, emotional abuse. It could be abuse when a person is younger. It could be conditions of, you know, um, injustice and disparate access to resources based on who you who you are as a, be a human being, whether that's race or sexual orientation, culture. Um, I have a very expanded definition of trauma in that way. I, I think 
Um, and I think that's a movement in the field that I work in is expanding mm. and broadening that definition to understand that there are lots of different circumstances that can cause these impacts in a person's body, in a person's mm. mind, in a person's um, mental capacity, in their psychological health, in their spiritual mm. being. Um, so it's it's less about looking at the the, cir- the circumstances or the incident, as you said, and more about uh, turning kind of the focus uh, to the person and what have been the impacts in all of these mm-hmm. areas of their life, their life, mm. no matter what the period of time is. Gotcha. Do you feel like this is going to kind of be like an onion here, but do you feel like somebody's um, stress response or trauma response can create more trauma? For them? What an interesting question. Yeah. Yes. I, I think you're right in saying that this is like peeling the layers of an onion. I think that a stress response, if we, if we look at the stress response and the possibilities of it, um, and one way to look at it is to say that a person, a person can deal with a, a trauma or have a stress response and it can look very different. So it could be but one way to look at it is to look at the fight, flight, freeze response that you yeah. may be familiar with and maybe many listeners familiar with. And um, that people you know, typically will go into some version of one of those, right? That if there's a threat that comes into their lives, they might come at it in a, in a, with a fight response. They might wanna like, they might feel aggressive. They wanna like confront it head on. Um, or they might flee. They might want to hide or run away from it um, to, to, again, to survive. This is part of that, like the body's physiological response, right? Or the other response could be to freeze. Um, just like you mentioned in the beginning, how, you know, sometimes animals, if you watch them, they also have all of these responses. But in that freeze response, um, though that all of those situations can open you up to re-traumatization in different ways. So um, for example, if, you know, if a person freezes in a situation where they feel threatened, maybe they dissociate, which is um, a term that's used a lot in my field where someone feels disconnected from their body. They're not they're not present. They may not be aware of their surroundings or their situation. Um, their mind may blank out. And if that happens, say on a crowded street, when you're crossing the street, that has really, you know, it's a very like explicit example of their dangerous ramifications to that. Mm. That could also happen interpersonally as well, right? If um, someone is, you know, with a person who is treating them badly or harming them, um, it's hard to, to be assertive and ask for, you know, what you need or want, or to say what you need or want um, in a way that someone could take advantage of the situation. Mm -hmm. So a stress response, I I think it's a good question that, you know, though those kind of reactions help us survive in a lot of ways, but then once the the threat has passed, it, it is possible that, when we go into those responses again to things that aren't aren't really a threat in the moment, that it could open up the possibility of threat. Yeah. Through no uh, fault of the person's own, right? It's yeah. just the body's 
the body's natural response. Like learned behavior. I was thinking of it just because I talk so much in my world about nutrition and wellness and healthy um, food relationships. And I'm thinking like, if you had a coping mechanism of overeating, and then at some day, some point, the overeating becomes the the traumatic experience itself and the judge mm-hmm. self-judgment. And that could be a total ripple effect. So that makes a lot of sense. And um, I want to know more about how we learn to do the healing and the coping from you. But before we do, um, you mentioned that the working with youth uh, was sort of where you got started. Um, what spaces specifically do you work um, or are people from all areas coming to you? The reason I ask is because I'm wondering if it's a lot of um, sexual trauma healing or work forced trauma, like events in, in the, in work that people are traumatized by. I I personally know someone who had a really traumatic experience at work, um, or family trauma and, and yeah, maybe we could start there with what industries or what spaces you, you kind of play in most often. Yeah. a, A lot of my background, um, in my work has been, uh, with those experiencing interpersonal or community violence. So from someone that they know often, whether that's a romantic partner or a family member um, or or someone in that lives in their community, even if they don't know them directly. But it's, it's typically, uh, I've worked with people who've had these situations of more complex trauma because there's been that element of relational betrayal um, from mm. others who are supposed to care for them or love them or, you know, um, and, and with a range of people, you know, I've, a lot of my work has been in the field of domestic violence, intimate partner violence. Mm. Um, and I, I want to kind of loop, you know, loop back to something that you were saying with your example about overeating that, mm-hmm. that piece about, um, how re-traumatizing. I, I think the, whether it's overeating, whether it's, an addiction of some kind. I think the things that come out of a trauma response that are natural ways of dealing with an event that was horrible or circumstances that are horrible. I think what can often be re-traumatizing about those things also is other people's responses to those things. I think Ah. people uh, tend to get blamed, right? It's, it's not, you know, if a person sees someone struggling with addiction, you know, often not always the response is very focused on like stigma of the individual or what they need to do differently. Or it, there's, there's this undercurrent of blame and shame, I think sometimes for symptoms like this that are really, um, a person trying to adapt to what they experienced. And so I think that's a really important piece of Mm. this picture to not lose sight of is that a lot of the trauma that can follow something that happened or that can be part of these persistent conditions really involves the the response of the people around the community around the person or the group of people. Mm, That makes sense because um, if I'm healing or coping in the best way I know how, and I'm getting a ton of unsolicited uh, feedback and advice and commentary and judgment, then that's going to have an impact um, on me. So thank you for, for um, illuminating that. And when you mentioned community and interpersonal stuff and relationship, I have a couple questions on relationship, but mm-hmm. actually I'll start there and then I'll go to this healing question. Um, 
with partnerships. Um, most listeners have probably had a significant other at some point or another. So I figure it's probably a good question. Um, what, if not physical or sexual abuse that are more like obvious, where do you draw the line to know that, that, um, or for someone to, because I think a lot of people don't come forward or, or struggle internally, um, because they don't know that they were gaslighted or they don't know that what they were struggling with was mental or emotional abuse. And I'm starting to see it more, um, out there. Like I, I did a talk recently about dating and networking and, somebody, um, to a group of people, it's sort of specific, but a a group of people who, uh, were going through breakups, really intense breakups. And a lot of them were saying, you know, I was, I was emotionally abused. I, I had mental trauma and, um, on some level I got it, but I would love to hear from you. Like, how do you define those types of trauma? What are, what do people need to be looking for or aware of to understand their experience? Uh, uh, I, yeah, I think you're talking about a really important realm in relationships is to understand. Again, I think the important place to start for a person is to, you know, think about what, how they're responding, how they're responding internally, emotionally, psychologically, and honor that, like honor their experience. I, I think it, with conversations about trauma and abuse, it often does get pulled to like, what, what is this external thing that's happened? And that's going to define what the trauma, like, if I'm traumatized or not, but start, I think it's important to start and, and look at, you know, am I, how has this impacted me? Whatever this is, this being the relationship perhaps. Um, and it, is it impacting me a way that I am internalizing these messages about myself that are really negative based on what a partner might be saying? Do I feel um, afraid to, to do certain things around this person because of the ramifications, you know, whatever it is, whether it's uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, or emo- uh, emotional forms of abuse, which could be like constant put downs, um, you know, maybe always kind of controlling the person's movements or trying to control the person's movements and actions that could be financially, for mm. example, like, you know, a person, uh, a person may have a job and get a paycheck, but the partner wants to control that in their bank account, as an example. There, there are different forms that that control um, can look like in a person's life. But I, I think that's an important piece. Like, is, this, is there a pattern, a consistent pattern of certain types of behaviors, um, mm. name calling, verbal kind of abuse and put downs? So looking, looking at the pattern and then looking and um, what, how is this impacting me and, and my emotional health, my social relationships, a lot of mm-hmm. people in um, abusive partnerships tend to uh, feel isolated from family and friends, or that can be part of the picture of, you know, yeah. a partner. So I think it's important to, yeah, to look at the pattern, to, to look also internally and, and, um, and that it's not okay what, what a person is experiencing. I think with, with relational trauma, it's very common for people to blame themselves or feel like they did something wrong, you know, who are, who are on the receiving end, um, of abusive, Mm. uh, behavior is to think that they did something wrong and that maybe if I do something differently, things will change. Mm. That's really helpful. And I, I want to reflect something for the listeners that you said, which was 
consider your internal experience because we just spent an entire year talking about stillness and going within and what does that even mean and how do we do it and what are we looking for all of those things and it is a really important um skill to sound kind of masculine but skill to master uh in order to be able to process what to even be present or like we were talking about in the beginning of this episode like to be aware of what's going on and um i was in a relationship that had a lot of those red flags like um anytime i wanted to be social it was like he didn't really like that or didn't want to come with me and always had other ideas of how just the two of us could do something instead. And um, when my family who doesn't live around here came in town, it was like, we don't have a lot of time to be with them. And it was, it was sort of that thing. And, and I always, I didn't see the signs. Um, I actually wrote about that in my book. I really was just ignoring them. And then later I went through those, those um, feelings of guilt or what did I do? So I think it's really relatable for people, but the, oh, like you said, if you know you're not able to express yourself or experience life the way that you it naturally innately want to with social uh, and, you know, any, any, in any way, you'll feel it on the inside and then you can kind of get your own answers. And I, I love that answer. Um, as far as um, community trauma and like you, you use that word. Do you believe in collective healing or do you think one-on-one is, is more effective? What's your take on that? I think it depends on the, the person or the group of people. Honestly, I, okay. I think all forms are probably needed uh, depending on the situation. And I, I think what works for one person won't necessarily work for another. I, I do think people have really unique, um, unique needs and, and healing journeys. And I think that's why community is so important in the picture. So, you know, we were just talking about partnerships, you know, and people in, in maybe abusive situations. It can be really hard for a person in that situation who's on the receiving end of those experiences to, even if they are able to look internally and, and get a sense that this isn't, this doesn't feel right for me, it, it can be really hard without supportive people around them or, or the community creating structures that enable people to recognize um, that a relationship is abusive uh, to be able to, to, to change it up or to, you know, find, like find a situation that feels more healing. Uh, So I think, I think the answer is yes, both, both are needed. Um, Mm. And they look like different things for different people. For some people, they, the point may be, I, you know, I, I just need to figure out how I feel in my body. Cause I don't know that right now um, to be able to even know what I want to do or what next steps I want to take. Um, I, I think community is an essential part of healing from trauma because trauma is all about an abuse of power in some form, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like. And so the healing um, it, it has to come in, in a collective way, as well as an individual way. Mm, Beautiful. And, um, do you believe that, that trauma healing has a timeline? So I'm sure everyone's heard the phrase time heals everything. (laughs) Um, but I can look at various things like maybe from college that felt a little traumatic or intense that I didn't really use any healthy coping mechanisms that I'm aware of when I was in college, besides over-exercising, Uh, But, you know, six, seven years later, after some, you know, uh, 
semi-conscious reflection, I felt like, oh, I'm not worried about that anymore. Um, So is that something that that time heals works? or, Or do you believe that there is some level of a timeline for healing, whether that's when you sign on potentially a client that you're working with, do they need a certain amount of time or do should people start working on healing right after the incident or is it best left to wait? Like, how do you process the timing of everything? Yeah. Good question. You know, I, I know so many of my answers are, you know, it really depends and it really does depend. Like for some people, um, they're not going to know, they're not going to start to recognize the impact on them from gotcha. an incident or a circumstance till maybe months, maybe even years later. Mm. Um, so, and for some, it will be quite obvious, right? An incident happened and this, I can feel this affecting me. Um, mm. And for some people, you know, it, like you were saying, it might be, there might be a briefer time period where they feel uh, the impact and then they find that over time, things do seem to get better. And that could be for a myriad of reasons. But for others, those those symptoms and experiences of a trauma response, they linger and they, they carry on longer. And they really impact in a really significant way a person's ability to live and, and to you know, reach their goals and, and to have relationships. And that's, and that's the place where um, when people feel that the suffering of that mm. really acutely, um, that, that could be, you know, there are many different ways to, to try to heal from that, but that could be a lifelong process. Gotcha. Um, I, I think regardless of everyone's time frame is going to be their own, right? Everyone's going to have their own timeline of healing and they get to say what that is, right. And how mm-hmm. that happens. Um, and they may decide to change it up over time. What works at one time may not work at another for the mm-hmm. for the person on their journey of healing. That's really important, I think, for people to hear. And one of the things that just came up for me when you were explaining that was, you know, Brené Brown talks about shame all the time. And on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the shadow side of ourselves and the areas in which uh, we carry shame in our lives and like how kind of hard it is to look at that. And and I think one of the things that came up for me in my own kind of stillness journey, self-growth journey, um, that, like you said, it's lifelong, continues to come up is when I go in and, or I'm journaling or I'm meditating or um, looking at my shadow self, there are some parts of that that um, I think are um, stored or um, maybe an effect of something I didn't realize was trauma. So like you said, you may not realize it till later, but the thing I want to highlight for the listeners is just like we have talked about on this podcast, shadow being something you're really not proud to like shout from the rooftops and something you really don't want to look at um, even yourself. Uh, If it is shameful, then there is healing to be done and it is something to focus on and that um, the the timeline is going to be, you know, different for for everybody. Um, So, when it comes to somebody recognizing this and they're like, okay, done some of the stillness work. I realize I have some unprocessed trauma from way back when, or this event just happened, all the different iterations we t- discussed. And like you said, it's different for everyone. Um, do you recommend, um, cause I know mental health, um, and therapy, all of that's becoming more mainstream these days. So do you recommend the first thing people do is go talk to someone um, or do you think starting with movement um, is a better modality? 
It's a good question. I, you know, I, it's hard to make recommendations without knowing people's specific situations. I think for me and the way I work, it, I try to be really collaborative with whoever's oh. in front of me to figure out really what is it, what is it they're looking for? What is, what has helped them in the past? What, what even kind of brought them to this, to even having a discussion about what they should do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for some people that, the embodiment piece or feeling safe in their bodies is going to be a starting step. But for others, they may have, have, you know, um, certain factors in their life, whether they're relationships or other pieces that, that really do support that piece. And they feel ready to talk about what they experience Mm. with a, perhaps with a mental health professional, perhaps in a group kind of setting. Um, There are lots of different possibilities for healing. And I think you know, in my profession, I'm, my hope is that that just continues to broaden, like different options are offered to people because um, I think a lot are needed. You know, some people may want to tap into more like expressive therapies or art and imagination. I've seen, yeah. you know, we started talking today about Mary Oliver, right. And her poem and, and, you know, little did I know she herself had experience of trauma where she had recurring nightmares and you can see that she, she was working something out in her craft and her art. So mm-hmm. that can be a way of healing for people. I, I, I think um, many people do find it incredibly helpful to talk to someone and to process in, in that cognitive way. Um, many people find that you know, being in their body, dancing, yoga, whatever that means can also be um, the way in. I, it's, I think everyone's way in is going to be different. I think the important thing is just to find a way in. If you're experiencing some of these things and you, you feel stuck or um, you're suffering as a result of them. Uh, what, uh, oh, I was just thinking when I wrote my book that I, I self-published, uh, I always use the word cathartic, like writing it, getting it out on paper was cathartic because it was a form of release for me with some of the stuff I experienced, which, um, you know, at the time I was like, oh, I didn't have anything traumatic. Like I, I you think even joked at the time in the book, I called it, you know, first world problems, but the part that I didn't realize or acknowledge and that why it I think took me longer to feel more like myself was that I was disregarding my own internal experience and externalizing it compared to the rest of the world. So um, thank you for helping me uh, have those realizations in this moment. Um, But I'd love to segue into movement specifically because you do uh, trauma sensitive yoga and I hadn't heard of that. Um, The only thing that my eyes were open to in 2020 was just the way yoga connects with like the brain and neuroscience, but like I don't know a ton. I just, I started looking at yoga as like an ancient, like tool, wisdom tool. And so I'd love for you to talk to us about your trauma sensitive yoga practice. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because yoga is an, a tool of ancient wisdom and there's a rich history of philosophy and practice, um, coming out of India. And I, I, I want to honor that, um, because, because it's, I think the tradition of yoga in itself is very syncretic in that it's, you know, even in, as it was developing in India there, it was pulling on a lot of different traditions. Mm. Um, And so I recognize, you know, trauma sensitive yoga as it looks today in our Western, you know, United States of America is, is part of that tradition and, um, and is also very beholden to it. And 
so trauma sensitive yoga the way the way that I practice it you know there I'm sure your listeners uh, many of them may have heard about trauma sensitive yoga and maybe even practice it at different studios or with individual practitioners um, it can look really different but the the trauma sensitive yoga that um, I kind of resonated with or got connected with as I was doing my work in trauma um, was, they call it trauma center, trauma sensitive yoga. It was developed out of uh, Massachusetts. There was um, a yoga teacher, David Emerson, and he connected with another yoga teacher, Jen Turner, who developed an organization to do yoga, to help people who had had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or other forms of trauma. Um, as a tool, right, as a way to, um, to try to help with some of the symptoms that a person might have as a result of that, whether it was flashbacks, nightmares, you know, feeling numb. Um, and so as they continue their journey, they started, they aligned with um, a trauma center, the trauma center in Boston that was doing a lot of work to understand how to help people recover mm. from, from trauma in many different ways. Um, so they worked really with uh, survivors of complex trauma to develop this, this version of trauma-sensitive yoga, which is very much about invitation, like just an, taking an opportunity to move your body and maybe sense internally, like we were talking about, to try to develop that muscle um, and see if, if you know, what, what you feel and what you sense and, and to be able to kind of use that as a way to guide choices and choice-making in life, um, to, to reconnect to self, um, in a different kind of way when it's, when it, because of the trauma, it's been difficult or challenging or almost near impossible. Wow. And, um, question on post-traumatic stress disorder. If I'm remembering the only person who's really talked about it, um, on this podcast was, um, an army or uh, Marine veteran, um, named Christian Alexo, who was, um, homeless in high school, put himself through high school in a storage container, crazy story. And now is a professional race car driver. But, uh, he talked about how the stress he was under when he served, at least one of the tours was in Iraq that he ended up developing, um, type, I believe it would be type one diabetes, type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. Um, I need to go back and fact check myself, but, um, he brought up post-traumatic stress disorder. And I, I know some people personally in my life who, um, have it. How does that differ from the generalized type of trauma that we've been discussing or does it at all? It, it may not. It, the post-traumatic stress disorder is a way in my field, you know, if you're a clinician or work in the mental health field, it's a way of, of diagnosing, specifically mm. diagnosing someone's trauma. Um, and so there are certain criteria and that involves, you know, components of a person feeling hypervigilant in their life. Like maybe they're always feel like they have to look over their shoulder or really jumpy, um, that they re-experience maybe whatever happened in some way, like that could be through, I mentioned nightmares or intrusive mm -hmm. thoughts. Um, it could also be through like numbing or dissociation, like feeling really disconnected from yourself or from other people. Um, so that that's the mental health world's like official, you know, okay. psychologists use that to diagnose. So it is very, it is connected with what we've been talking about. Um, but there is a movement in the, in the field that I work in to 
expand that definition in a, in usually they'll call it complex trauma in my field, like to try to explain that movement of broadening the definition a bit to incorporate things that aren't part of that PTSD definition, mm. including relational trauma or trauma that isn't a specific incident, but more kind of a persistent condition like we've been talking about. Mm. Um, so I know there was a move actually in, in the field to have that complex or developmental trauma be incorporated into the official uh, world. And that's that's an ongoing conversation and discussion. Okay. But um, I, I, you know, in my work and experience, I, I kind of firmly believe in that the complex uh, trauma and the experience of that to kind of to flesh out um, mm. and broaden that definition a little more. Awesome. Well, I have two kind of, I don't know if they're big, but just two other questions that have come up. Um, and I want to circle back. So when we think about yoga and we think about releasing maybe through the body or letting go through movement, um, I had a memory about um, different times I've had deep tissue massage um, because even into my 20s, doing competitive powerlifting, competitive bodybuilding, uh, fitness instructing full-time, my body was really like my tool. And I was doing a lot of like self-care that should have been, you know, I say self-care, it should have been a luxury, but really it was sort of a necessity. And in some of these deep tissue massages, I was having memories pop up and luckily they were nothing traumatic or, or, um, you know, shocking or, or making me feel any strong emotions, but they were startling because um, they were just so overwhelming. So in a deep tissue um, massage on my thigh, um, on one thigh, I remembered, I saw all of a sudden I saw as my eyes closed, I was relaxing um, uh, moguls. And um, I grew up going to ski school like all day in the winter and my quads would just be burning all day. And it was like just digging into that muscle. All of a sudden I was like there. And then, um, when they did the other quad, I remember gymnastics as a little girl and I was kind of put into this intensive, you know, we did 20 hours a week when I was 10 years old situation, mm -hmm. um, which now I'm thinking about, I'm like, oh, that was a little traumatic, but, um, I had that memory of gymnastics pop into my brain. So what is that? Oh, is there anything about this trauma, trauma sensitive yoga that uh, creates space for those memories to come up? Is that something that could happen in, in that as well? That, thank you so much for that example. I, that is a great example. And there is room for that. I, you know, the whole, the movement of trauma sensitive yoga is about inviting someone to, to follow the set, their sense, wherever it might land in their body. So it could be your thigh, it could be your neck, um, might be somewhere in your upper back. And it's really just an invitation. If a person wants to to notice what's going on in that area and they don't have to make meaning about it in the moment. It's, it's really purely just to practice that muscle of sensing mm -hmm. in, because um, as we were talking about earlier on, when a person has experienced trauma, that's, that's a capacity that gets knocked offline. Like if we think about the fight, flight, freeze, being able to sense into the body is not going to necessarily in the moment of a threat, help us survive in that way. It's just to either get out or, you know, get rid of this threat. So it's almost like you're working that building that muscle back up and, and reconnecting yourself in a different way, because when that threat's gone, um, your body has a lot of information for you about what you need and what you want. Mm. Um, so it's really, it, it's, it's, it's simple in, in that it, it really is just about, 
offering an opportunity to, to move and to notice what's going on in an area and then decide, okay, how do I move next? Or what do I do with this next? Mm. It's not uh, trauma sensitive yoga, you know, for anyone who's had experience um, in, in yoga classes before, it, you know, trauma sensitive yoga is not about doing a pose and holding it in a certain way, you know, for an external authority, like a yoga facilitator, like myself, it's not, it's really purely for you and for uh, you based on what you're noticing in your body and what it needs in the moment. Wow. That's really, really um, incredible. And I hope, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we have a lot of Boston listeners um, just because I lived there for six years mm-hmm. and now I'm not too far North. So um, maybe they could check it out and find, find somewhere in, in um, Boston or in um, Massachusetts or online even. Um, so I'll put Certainly. a link in the, in the show notes for that. So my final kind of bigger question um, is uh, it's, I'm going to, make it personal first, but it's a bigger, it's a more broad question. So in my life as a pregnant person, um, I'm seeing a lot on Instagram because I'm filtering for it, uh, about birth trauma and that experience. And it's, then your brain starts to think, well, if birth trauma is possible, how do I prevent that from happening? And in American culture, we're all about being prepared and setting goals and having strategies and Um, I think that can be part of why we all get so anxious because we're constantly living uh, in the future, in our minds, out of our bodies. Um, But on what level may it be important, I don't know, for people to have some level of awareness going into a situation um, so that is there like, is there anything you can do to prevent future traumas? Maybe if you're someone who's had it or maybe someone who's listening to this and they're like, huh, I don't know if I've ever had trauma, but I hear you could have birth trauma and I don't want it. So what is your take on that? It's such a great question, Garrett. I, you know, in the work that I do, we talk a lot about having uh, what we call a safety plan. Some people call it a self-care okay. plan, but things um, that you can do, knowing, you never know what situation you're going to go into, right? Even if you know something's coming, you don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know what might um, trigger a certain emotional response in you. Um, so it's really, when I say safety plan or self-care plan, it's really for moments, for moments, unexpected moments where your capacity might be overwhelmed because when you're in that moment, you're not going to be able to come up with the strat, the plan or, or the things that you can do. And it can be really simple. Like if you know, for example, for me, I know that, um, being able to be in nature is a really grounding thing for me. So mm-hmm. if I know that on my safety plan, I would put something like, can you, can you take a walk right now outside? Or if you can't do that, is there a picture that I have on my phone of something that I can glance down at um, like a beautiful scene that I've taken a picture of mm-hmm. out in nature or so that's just a personal example. I, I also have, I'm the, the proud owner of a, a pandemic puppy. Um, oh. And she is, I can't not look at her and smile. And so having a picture of my like puppy, or maybe for someone, it's their kids or, you know, having something to, so that when you're in that moment, p- potentially of a, a trauma response, it can kind of like trick hook your brain back online a little bit in terms of trying to ground you and having those kind of strategies or things in mind before 
before thought out before you might be going into a, a circumstance that could overwhelm you. So with birth, you know, are there certain people in your life that are super supportive of you? And can you, you know, work out with them beforehand, you know, how they can be present and involved in a way that's going to be supportive of you would be an example for, for that, I would think. Um, mm. So they're, they're, they sound really simple. They are simple things, but in the moment, that's what is needed. <laughs> needed, like things that can be done concretely in the moment um, that will help ground a person and, and mm -hmm. kind of prevent a spiraling off into the trauma response. Yeah, it's so hard for me not to think about um, anxiety and some parallels here just because um, so much of what you just shared was, um, a, you know, a mo different modalities and strategies and plans for, um, grounding. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember my first job and, and moments throughout my twenties, when I would over caffeinate, be really stressed out, basically living from a fight or flight level of consciousness, not actually mm -hmm. fighting or fleeing from a situation, but I was so chaotic in my, just the way I was operating that um, I would have moments where I would have to like pinch myself because mm -hmm. I would start to feel so out there from all the caffeine, or maybe I was overtired from getting up and teaching 5am workout classes. And um, I know other people out there have had those moments where they're like, they want to like slap themselves or like, you know, snap their fingers and kind of like wake out of maybe it's even a brain fog. So I just wanted to share that that was my experience as you were sharing that because um, so much of um, both of these topics, trauma and anxiety uh, involve being out of our bodies and not in our own experience and present. And we've talked so much about presence over the last year. I just, I wanted to draw that parallel. And then I wanted to ask you if there are any other common questions you get about trauma that I haven't asked, because I just, you know, like I said, I've never discussed trauma on this mm -hmm. um, podcast and I am so uneducated on it that I, I'm just curious if there's anything I missed or anything else that people generally want to know. No, I appreciate that. And I, and I would say that you're not alone. I think we're all learning about trauma in different ways and ongoing. It's not something that we're taught from an early age to understand mm -hmm. or to have a language around. Um, so that's, I think, a completely normal part of our experience in life. And, uh, you know, I, I think a, que a question that I, you know, it's not always an overt question that I get, but I've done this work for long enough that I, in the things that people are, I see they're interested in or they ask me, I think the theme of it is often, is it possible for me to feel better? Mm. I think that's, that's really the question that people just want to feel better. Of course, of course. Um, and I would say unequivocally, yes, you know, it may, we talked about timeline and that it's not an easy road. I, I don't mean that to be dismissive at all, because for some people that could be a lifetime road, um, but it can be a lifetime road of growth and, and feeling better. Yes. And I've seen it a lot in my work. Um, of people's strength and their growth and yes they're feeling better and and meeting their goals um, and so it's I, that's where the community piece again comes in I think it's so important to to find those people or those spaces and places in life that you can trust and feel safe enough in to start to do some work to feel even safer or to mm -hmm. feel even more connected 
Um, and you, and you, you know, whoever is listening or who, you know, for whoever it is, or, or I'd talk to would say, it's your choice. You get to decide at each step uh, what that looks like um, and what that should be like for you, because you have an, you're in a unique person and you have a unique experience mm -hmm. in this world. Um, and so there may be a lot of, of people telling you, you should do this or you should do this, you know, and, and maybe some of that advice is helpful, but mm -hmm. at, at heart, I think it's important to honor your experience and, and, and develop that muscle to figure out what is it that you do really need and what's a way that you feel like you need to get there in this moment. And I think that's what's so helpful about what I've seen can be helpful about um, embodied experiences, whether that's again, yoga, trauma sensitive yoga, or maybe dance anything that helps you to tune in and develop that capacity to figure out what, what am I feeling in this moment mm -hmm. and what choice do I need to make next um, mm. is going to be really important in that process. That is so helpful and uh, so aligned just with everything we've talked about on the show, you know, over the past year or so. And I do have now, of course, one more question just because I was racking my brain. Like I felt like there was something I was missing and I, without going too deep into a rabbit hole, I'm sure there's someone out there that's wondering about medication and the role of prescriptions in and healing. And I personally, when I come at this question, you know, personally, I've never taken any um, antidepressants or anti-anxiety pills, anything like that. And um, I actually look personally uh, into a lot of the research around more spiritual, natural, um, emotional healing through all the things that we've been talking about. But I also understand other people's experiences, um, have been really positive, especially women postpartum with being on med. So I I'm not saying that there's one right or wrong way, but for anyone out there who is on medication and has experienced trauma, can they still do these modalities and have, you know, like you said, they can't, can't they can feel better. Um, and do you have, do you get any questions around that and healing? It's a good question. And I, I have to say, you know, I'm my, as a mental health professional, I don't, I don't prescribe medications. Yeah. That's not my particular background in the field. Um, so it is one, it is one method and intervention that people can use in their process of healing. And for some people it works really well. And for some, uh, they don't, that's not a choice that they want to make and that's okay. I would say that if you are interested in exploring the possibilities of that, wherever, whoever you are and wherever I would, um, try to find someone who, you know, a psychiatrist, they are often, um, versed in kind of a psychiatrist, or like you said, there may be alternative um, medicine options for people to um, to consult with a provider, a medical provider, to see just what the options are. But to your question of are these practices still helpful, I would say absolutely yes, because um, whatever you know, if someone did take a medical intervention or or an alternative method, you want to be able to notice how that lands in your body. Right. Mm. And to communicate that to whoever the provider is about how, how you're experiencing that, because everyone's going to have, everyone's body's different. Um, it, they may not have the same experience of taking a medication or, yeah. um, or an alternative method of healing. And so these kind of embodied methods can be a way, a possible way to, to tune into your body, to understand how that is impacting you, whether for, whether it's, it's making you feel better or not. Mm, that is so helpful. I'm glad that I 
that I asked that and um, that you were able to illustrate that for us. So um, where can people find you? Um, how can they work with you? How can they access support or resources that you would recommend? Um, obviously, everything you say now, I'll put in the show notes, but just for people to hear hear it. Um, That's great. Yeah, um, you can. So the, um, the trauma-sensitive yoga that I do, there's a website with more resources, information, research that's been done about it. It's traumasensitiveyoga.com. And there's a page on there with the facilitators, uh, include myself included, but all over um, the world, actually, all oh. over the US, all over um, the different continents. So if you are interested, please feel free to uh, access the site and get more information and get my information and reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, for being here and teaching us so much about trauma. Um, I, I'm just so grateful. Garrett, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's really, it's been an honor and just so nice to have a conversation with you about this.